Shalom. Welcome to the Parsha GYS. This is Amet, aka Shomer Man, coming at you. So, this week is Parsha Pinkus, and of course, you know, one of my sources is Shonuf Pinkus, so this week's Torah portion will be dedicated to Shonuf Pinkus, and it will be called Shonuf Pinkus. So, without further ado, we got a lot to talk about today, so here we go. Let's start with the opening bracha for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'achar banu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-Torah. Amen. Amen. Hashem. So, hope everyone's doing well and having a wonderful beginning to the three weeks. I'm going to go ahead and give you the Hebrew name or terminology for these three weeks. They are called Bain Hametzarim. Bain Hametzarim. If you want to put it in a roll it all together format. Bain Hametzarim. And if you are thinking, that sounds a lot like Mitzrayim, you are correct because this week or these three weeks that we're currently in are called Between the Straits. And remember, Mitzrayim is a place of confinement. And so if you think about leaving Mitzrayim, it's like a, having a birth, if you will. That's why the children of Israel, or we, I should say, went through the Yom Suf. Because those are the waters that parted and allowed us to go out into freedom. So, may it be so for these three weeks. Because everything about these three weeks is about the coming of Mashiach. You know, I'm going to go ahead and give you an elucidation from the Rambel that he said, if you look at the beginning and the end, the Aleph and the Tav, which we know is Mashiach, he says that you can really look and see the two Mashiachs. 17th of Tammuz. The tablets were broken. The, the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av, the temple was destroyed. Now, if you think about the tablets being broken, remember the broken tablets represent Yosef. So Mashiach bin Yosef was broken for us. Three weeks later and elucidated by Chassis, a.k.a. Natan, he brought down the three weeks can be correlated in parallel to the three days. So we would start out these three weeks with the crucifixion, if you will, wait three days for the resurrection. But now I know you may think that that breaks down because, pun intended, because on Tishbaab the temple was broken down. But here's the deal with that. That if you look at any kind of commentary about the destruction of the temple on Tisha B'Av, they say that that's when Mashiach was born. Yes, they literally call that one of the birthdays of the Mashiach. And again, Chassis brings down that that third day is the Mashiach ben, Yo, or ben David. So you can see that in the Haftarah, get you some for Parsha Pinkus. I know it's like 45 hours of craziness with some sound difficulties, but, you know, uh, it is a great drush for uh, some insight. So if you can hang in there through those sound issues, uh, you will glean some some crazy, amazing stuff. Like, I, I don't know, like, again, there are no windows here that I can jump out of. So 
that's what I felt like the whole time. I just felt confined. I literally felt like I just, I don't know what to do with myself. It's just so intense. So anyway, with that being said, you know, and going back to the Rambel, he's saying, you know, the two Mashiachs and how you have Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. And for that simple fact, I'm going to go ahead and go to show enough pinkest before I run away and leave him. But I don't want to do that. So he says, this week's parasha is parasha Pincus. In a non-leap year, it is always read during the three weeks of Bain Hametzrim. Hametzrim. It says that the theme, okay, no, I'm not going to go there yet. So in a non-leap year, which is a year like this year, which means there is no second month of Adar, so we're getting ready to go into Tishrei in a couple of months. You know, we're going to go through Av, and we're going to go through Elul, Besrat Hashem, and then Mashiach will come, Besrat Hashem, come on, pull him down out of Hashemayim, bring it on. Okay, but anyway, um, that's just my personal yarning, hopefully it's yours. But when we go into this next year, then we'll see, I, don't, I haven't looked at the calendar that far out, but you know whenever we have a second Adar, it would start Tishrei and then go all the way through uh, into the following Elul. So between that time frame, you'd see, is there are there two Adars? Because if there are, then that means we're in a leap year. But we're not in a leap year. So Pinchas is read during Bain HaMitzrayim. If we were in a leap year, it would be read before. Now, why am I taking so long to talk about this and describe this well number one because your haftars change you know uh that was one thing that kind of stuck out to me where i was like you know i'm always just kind of on the fly going through and looking at you know which tour portion it is this week and which haftar portion but if you have a humash your humash has like set haftaras haftarot that are in the back but if you opened it this week, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, is it Yahu or is it Second Kings or First Kings? And it's just like, well, if it was a leap year, then it'd be First Kings because your story for the Haftarah is either going to be Eliyahu and the prophets of Baal or it's going to be Yermiyahu talking about the destruction of the temple, which needed to happen so that Hashem could rebuild his nation, like make a one new man kind of thing. Like, in other words, purify them from all of their sins and iniquities and cause them to arise erect to life, to a new life, to newness, you know, because when the temple is destroyed, Mashiach is born kind of thing, you know, so you're kind of looking at that difference in contrast. So it's definitely something to pay attention to which is why I'm mentioning this. So what if it was leap year and Pincus comes up? Pincus would be read before the 17th of Tammuz. So you're going to, you would go into the 17th of Tammuz, a very, very hard day, which is a typically a fast day if it's not a Shabbat. And right before that, you would have been in Parsha Pincus, which Parsha Pincus is all about yearning for the coming of Mashiach. So you would have been yearning for him to come, and then there would have been this day of fasting and uh, mourning and things like that. 
And obviously, this time frame we're in now, at least um, as far as the generations go, we're really close to the coming of Mashiach. So our mourning is slowly turning into joy, you know, because we're anticipating what we don't have right now. And it's like, that would be the case. But right now, since we're in a non-leaf year, the case is that we've just come out of the 17th of Tammuz. And now we're yearning for Mashiach. We're like, okay, so 17th of Tammuz, we've made Teshuva, Mashiach was broken for us. We accept that, and now we desire to move forward. So let's rectify those broken tablets, let's be made new, making Teshuva on Teshuva, you know, really... Uh, having self-introspection, self-examination, what's actually going on. You know, Hashem, we don't have any music right now uh, going on. So that really gives us a lot of time with our own thoughts because we're like, I don't know what to do with myself because I don't have music, but I can have music on Shabbat, you know, and it's just kind of like, my goodness. Again, Rumbell elucidation, quickly interrupting myself, is that there are three Shabbats during Bain HaMitzrim, and those three Shabbats are called Raglaim, which are, Raglaim is literally the word for feet, so you know that little known passage about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? Yeah, so that correlates to Raglaim, which are called the feasts, because you make Aliyah to Yerushalayim for the feasts. For Pesach, for Shavuot, for Sukkot. So literally, how beautiful are your feet? Because you're going to Yerushalayim. Anyone you encounter on the way, they're probably going to ask you at some point if they care or if they're just curious. I don't know. Caring and curious, I guess, is a fine line. But anyway, they're going to probably be like, so where are you going? Where are you headed? You know, oh, I'm going to Yerushalayim. Oh, really? The holy city? What's the deal? You know, like going to the top of the world. And it's just like... Yes, I'm going to serve Hashem and bring my offering and rejoice with his people and celebrate Torah. And they're like, wait, what? You know, can I come? And you're like, yes, you can come. I don't know why you aren't already headed that way now. I mean, you don't need to pack a bag. Just come on. Let's go right now. You know, and that's called beautiful feet. Those are having feet that are showed with the gospel. You know, like you have your kingdom kicks on your gospel Nikes or something. I don't know what you want to call it, but those, those, uh, your feet, they're covered with the gospel of peace. You know, that's all about the feasts. It's all about going up to the mountains. So yes, I'm alluding to the armor that you're supposed to put on, you know, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, you know, gospel of peace on your feet. So By the way, that's where that comes from. So if you're ever thinking, oh, that's a new concept, and it's about a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier or something like that. It's just like, you know, the Romans crucified Mashiach, and they destroyed the temple. Well, they didn't destroy the temple in Shaul's lifetime, but shortly after, it was destroyed. But why would we want to memorialize you know, the, the the enemies of our people, like in our holy concepts of Torah principles. It's just kind of like, eh, 
I know that kind of happens like when you look at the the journeys of the children of Israel through the wilderness. Most of those names are names of pagan gods, and it's just kind of like we're not supposed to be saying their names, and it's just like we say them in there, and it's just like with the Torah teaching, you can say it. But if it's just colloquial conversation, not really teaching about it, no, we don't say it. So that's kind of that. But you take away the whole Jewishness to the Brit Hadashah when you really make it sterile into like... I don't know, we're going to talk about a Roman soldier as opposed to, you know, elements of oral Torah. But the problem is, this oral Torah is not widely accepted by many people who profess and proclaim to be teachers of the word. And it's just kind of like, don't you know that the word you have is in part because there's a written Torah and there's an oral Torah. And when you put those two together, that's the completion you know, um, don't really want to get too much into Zohar, even though we're going to get into Zohar a little bit today, but not too much because that can get really crazy real fast. But we're going to do it the Lapid way. So it's all right. But Zohar brings down that, you know, if you separate out the oral Torah and the written Torah, maybe this is not Zohar, maybe it's more of Talmudic, probably even showing up pink is probably, I don't know. He's really been on the oral Torah kick. So between those two sources, um, so it kind of sources hatred. I mean, almost doesn't count, I realize. But he says if you separate out the oral Torah and the written Torah and keep them separate from one another, you're, you're, it's like separating a husband from a wife. Or it's like separating the actual performance of a mitzvah with the studying of a mitzvah. Because you realize if you just study a mitzvah and you don't do it, I mean, that, that becomes a problem. Especially if it's a mitzvah you could do, you know, like keeping the Shabbat or wearing Zizit or, you know, dressing modestly, eating kosher. Like if you don't do any of those things, but you study about them, it's just kind of like, yeah, that's that's what that's what the adversary wants us to do. It's like just keep all your Torah in principle and it's great as long as you don't do it. You can be a hearer of the word because they'll be blessed. You know, and it's just like, it says, blessed not only are the hearers, but the doers, you know, so what is that all about? But anyway, uh, so that's a whole section about why Parsha Pincus is so important. Oh, and I was in the middle of the Ron Bell's elucidation. He's probably going to like shield me to death if he finds out about this, if he's going to share it on Shabbat, but you know, as long as you haven't heard it 400 times, then uh, you haven't heard it enough. So everybody act real surprised if you hear him talk about this on Shabbat. But anyway, he says that uh, the first Shabbat, which is coming up this week, would be the festival of Pesach. The second Shabbat would be the festival of Shabbat. The third Shabbat would be the festival of Sukkot. And that would take us... Right into Tisha B'Av, and then we'd have the final fast day. So it's going to be like really interesting because that would be like the pinnacle and the height. Because you know, Mashiach was born during the festival of Sukkot, and the festival of Sukkot represents Yaakov, who is also called the Lamb of God. And it's just kind of like the Lamb of God, the marriage festival, and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like right into the fast day. 
you know, as far as this year, how the timetable works out. And it's just like, wow, you know, and it it's really cool because when you talk about Kiddushin, which is the marriage, the couple literally has a person, they have a their own personal Yom Kippur, you know, the day before their wedding. They don't do this whole bachelor party, act all wild, soil your, soil your royal oats type evening. They spend their previous evening fasting, break, making teshuva. They do a mikvah, you know. So then when they come underneath the hoopah, they're like pure. They're like, they're literally called newborn babes, you know. So think about that when B'nai Yisrael entered underneath the hoopah, which Hashem chose to use Mount Sinai as a hoopah. And again, there was those three days that we were purified and that we mikvahed, we washed our clothes. So, I mean, it was literally like we're getting married, you know, to Hashem with the giving of the Torah. And the Torah is called a ketubah. It's like, that's the marriage contract, you know, and it's just like, whoa, you know, whole bride of Mashiach thing. Now that makes sense. Okay. But anyway, so we're going to go right out of, you know, the highest Shabbat, which that Shabbat also will be called Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat of vision, which is the Shabbat that Hashem grants every Yehudi a vision of the third Beit HaMikdash, you know, and so... I mean, it's going to be such an emotionally charged, high, uh, moed, you know, appointed time. And so it's going to almost be like celebrating the likeness and the essence of a wedding that we're going to prepare for after the fact, you know, because it's like we're going to go through the Shabbat and then we're going to go right into the fast, you know, and it's just kind of like that's interesting and that's really crazy because it's like when... Mashiach did the Seder with his Talmudim, and then he went to be the Pesach offering, and then there was a Seder that night, you know, after his sacrifice. You know, that's why they didn't have a funeral for him or a memorial service. They wrapped his body in a white cloth like we wrap our challah on every Shabbat uh, night, except on uh, the week of Pesach. But they wrapped his body in that white linen cloth. So think about that when you're wrapping your hala, the Shabbat. You know, that's the body of Messiah when he was taken down off the stake. And, you know, he's put away to be brought forth from the earth. You know, like Hamotzilekamin, Ha'aretz, you know, that kind of thing. Just saying. But anyway, so we kind of going to have that going on. And it's just kind of like that's an interesting little paradigm there. It's like Seder. Then Pesach lamb is slaughtered, Seder. It's just like, wait, what just happened? Because the Pesach Seder happens on the 14th of Nisan. It's like, well, Mashiach Yeshua is literally the embodiment of being inside time and space, but outside time and space at the same time. Now, perusing through a whole bunch of sources on Shemot, I believe it's chapter 25 talking about the Aron, the Ark. It's talking about how the Ark was the same thing. It literally was the throne of Hashem. Okay, let's put this together real quick. The throne of Hashem is sapphire tablets. You know, that's where sapphire tablets came from, the throne of Hashem. Okay, go back to Parshakitisa. Sapphire tablets, throne of Hashem. They were taken from there. Okay. The throne of Hashem, let's go down another notch. 
That was what was floating over the water, hovering, Slika. Let's get technical. Hovering over the waters in Bereshit chapter 1, when it says the spirit of Hashem hovered over the waters, well, it says the spirit of Hashem is also the throne of Hashem. That's Rashi and Ramban with a noon. Okay, so throne of Hashem, sapphire tablets, throne of Hashem, hovering over the water is the spirit of Hashem. Now, let's drop it down another notch. The throne of Hashem is also called the Kaporet on the Aron. Okay, the top, the covering, the Kaporet. The top of the ark, where the Keruvim are. Remember, this is one whole piece. There's no separate pieces. It's like all gold. It's a covering with Keruvim on top, and then the Shekinah appears in the cloud over the ark so much so that it's like talking to the image of Hashem inside the tent which is Bami Bar chapter 12 when it talks about Moshe and Hashem interacting inside the tent namely it says that Hashem is speaking to himself go back to Targum Ankelos in that chapter where it was talking about Hashem speaking from there so, Hashem is talking to himself, but he's talking to Moshe, and it's Moshe face-to-face -face with the image of Hashem, which is him speaking with the voice that's in the cloud that's called the Shekinah, that's over the Keruvim, that's on top of the Aron in the Holy of Holies, projecting through the parochid, filling all of the Mishkan with the same loudness and volume of Har Sinai. So that's all going on, and unless you're inside the tent, you can't hear any of that. So what's that all about, right? Okay, so that's beyond the scope of this podcast. I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, I just I like saying that phrase. This is beyond the scope of this work to elucidate that, you know. And then they leave it untranslated. I don't know. I'm just I'm not bitter about that. Not at all. When I'm reading all these books, and it's just like. Everything's in English except the cool stuff that really says, you know, well, Yeshua is the Messiah or something. I mean, they get pretty close to that. They might as well just say it, I mean, or put it in, make parenthetical statements about that or something. I don't know. Anyway, throne of Hashem is the cover of the ark. So now, when you manifest that throne of Hashem, cover of the ark, and manifest all of that, into the form and likeness of a man. Okay? Again, form and likeness of a man. Manifestation. Literally. Man, if, a station. Like, if this man is a station of that, which is completely beyond all of our understanding. Okay? That's Yeshua HaMashiach. So that means you got this whole, like, really but not really, but really, walking around and going on so if you're doing anything with him it literally is an appointed time you know it's so it's it's mind-boggling to try to make that all fit out but just for the sake of our example and illustration about when did mashiach have his seder because it was like the night before the night of the Seder. And it's just like, that shouldn't be right because you technically can't call that. But really, are you going to tell the creator of the universe when and when he can't have his Seder just because he said, you know, 
the Seder is going to be on the 14th of Nissan. I think he would have covered that detail if that was the case. Just just going out on a really, really thin limb there. So, anyway. Whew. That's a lot. Alright, so. Got that. Throne of Hashem. Bain HaMetzrim. Pinkas, so important. We just came out of Sukkot. Going into Tishba'ab, fast day. So, all of that to kind of conclude that little section. Is that... When we're going through the Bain HaMetzrim, that, man, okay, I'm looking at the Hebrew, I just realized, okay, so, back over here to Shona Pincus, he literally says, Bain HaMetzrim is derived from the following Pasuk. Pasuk is Hebrew for verse. The verse is Echa 1-3. Echa is Lamentations. Lamentations 1-3. So if you want to learn some Hebrew, open up Lamentations 1-3 and look at the interlinear. Okay? Or look at your Humash or, I mean, your Tanakh. Slika. And if you look in that verse, you'll see literally Bain Hametzrim. And it's so cool because Hametzrim literally is spelled the Mitzrayim. Like it's the same letters, but with a hay in the front. So Mitzrayim with a hay is Hametzrim, which is the three weeks. And Bain, which means like in between, like Hamavdil Bain, Kodesh Lakol, like who separates between the holy and the mundane, like in our Havdalah prayers, right? So check this out, though. If you said um, Ben... Hametzrim, or Ben Yah Mitzrayim, son of Hashem, confinement. You can literally arrange the letters to say Ben Yah Hametzrim. Slika Ben Yah Mitzrayim. Ben Yah, son of Yah, like son of Hashem, and Mitzrayim, to be confined. So if you're confined, in the son of Hashem, you're in the three weeks. And it's such a dichotomy because we think of this weeks, these weeks as mourning and uh, heart-wrenching and historically like, ah, and fast days and no music and exile and oh my gosh, like what in the world? But even Mashiach himself is in exile. He's sitting at the gates of Rome. He's not even enthroned as king over his people, like in the midst of his people. He's ruling literally from afar right now and at a very interesting location because at the gates of Rome is so crazy because it's like, is he in Rome? Is he not? How far away is he from Yisrael? Or like, what's up with that? And remember, Mitzrayim, Egypt, is the prototype and pattern for every single exile. So every single exile is called Mitzrayim. Again, Shonah Pincus brings that down. That's why uh, the exile to Mitzrayim is like so important that uh, Hashem told Abraham, I just want to let you know before everything finalizes and completes, you know, there's going to have to be this period of exile and darkness that your people are going to have to go through. Your children are going to have to go through, Slika. 
And that happened, the covenant between the parts. Again, study commentary on that. That should be parsha leklaka. And um, that really just kind of does a whole lot there. So anyway, that's kind of awesome because that explains why I've been feeling so amped up and turned up and yearning for Mashiach and having such a hurt heart for people who are not Jewish, people who are not Lapid, because it's just like the freedom of being a Lapid. I mean, come on, like for real, you can't get nothing better than that. I mean, it's like, it's intense. I mean, taking a Bible that has been so crazily non-Jewish and now like everything about it is Jewish and everything finally connects. There is no, there are no inconsistencies whatsoever. I think, I think that's just absolutely incredible. And for people to not know this, the people to feel so jaded by what has been perpetrated by TV evangelists and street corner, uh, gospel evangelists. And it's like, okay, be careful, Shomer man, don't paint with a broad paintbrush. I get it. But I'm just saying, as far as the majority goes, there's been a lot of this. Don't be oppressed by the law of Moses. Don't be oppressed by the law of God. Because literally, the law of Moses is the law of God. So if you don't want God's law, then chances are you probably don't want God, which is kind of awkward. So it's just like, really, how is this supposed to work? That we're going to talk about and serve a God who uh, gave us a foundation in the beginning that we just need to completely disregard. However, we need to look at it from time to time and be like, "Woo, aren't we glad we don't have to do that? That literally comes out of people's mouth. And that's just like, careful. Now, let me go ahead and lay something else heavy down while I'm all doing all these swerves. There is nothing about my notes that is happening right now. I did like two drops from showing up pinkest and that's about it but anyway so you know this whole thing about pronouncing the divine name the tetragrammaton the yod and hey with the vav and hey i mean we don't even spell that name out without breaking it up you know like we don't want to say it all together you know we call him hashem when we're doing colloquial speech and then we say adonai when it's prayer or when it's reading uh, from the Tanakh or the Torah scroll, you know, and also Ram Bell found a really cool Midrash at some point. I don't remember where he got it from, but uh, he said that, you know, Adam was questioned by Hashem, like, okay, so you've named all these animals and, you know, Yashar Koach, but what are you going to call me? And he says, I don't know. And it's just kind of like, okay. So if you ever wonder why Hashem's name is Adonai, it's because Adam said, I'm going to call you Adonai. Like, that's what I name you. So if you're not okay with with, and satisfied with calling Hashem Adonai out of reverence and respect, you know, then you're probably not okay with calling a dog a dog or a bird a bird because, you know, the person who gave us those names, you know, he told us that Hashem's name is Adonai, and it's like, yeah, why don't we call him what his, what his, what his real name is, so to speak, or what his most holy name is? Now, that's precursor to say that if you think about 
when Hashem's holy name was ever uttered. It was uttered once a year on the holiest day of the year when the people were fasting, when the people were making teshuva, when the people were gathered together at the Beit HaMikdash and the Kohen Gadol did all these purifications and sacrifices and at the highest point of the day he silently utters it and it's not even him that utters it check just trust me on this check me on this uh it, this is all parasha um akare mot and you can look at the midrash get you some you can look at rashi you can look at any kind of humash commentary telling you yom kippur man like this is the business so that time you know that's when the name was uttered and it was uttered via the ruach hakodesh the shekinah so it really wasn't even kohen gadol that was saying this and pronouncing this name so to the people who want to try to pronounce that name and say that name Right now, as of this day and age, that's kind of a, a problem because you've removed yourself from the environment. You removed yourself from the Kedushah. You've taken yourself outside of an appointed time. Chances are this person who wants to say this name is not a Cohen. So that's an issue. And uh, yeah, so... On those things alone, it's kind of an issue. I just want to paint a really big picture here just so we can all come together as Lapidim and, you know, try to bring some loving correction to the the zealot tree of saying we need to pronounce his name. We need to know it and we can't forget it. And it's just like, OK, if you're connected to Hashem. If you're studying his Torah, if you're seeking his face, if you're walking beside him, you won't forget his name. That's like saying, I'm going to come home to my family. And what's your name, child, son of mine, daughter of mine? Or what's your name, girl, wife of mine, lady of mine, love of my life? Like, you're not going to do that or vice versa. You know, it's just kind of like, what kind of what kind of statement is that to say you don't want to forget Hashem's name, so therefore we must pronounce it every time. I mean, that's about the rationality of that. Now, let's go to a deeper level because this is why I'm sharing this because this hit me so hard in the face that I'm just going to have to share it with everybody. And I was like, oh, look, a podcast. So when Hashem's name was said with all those previous circumstances, everyone and their grandsisters fell on their faces and said, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malkuto Leolam Vayed, prostrate on the ground, like on the temple court floor. No uh, dignity whatsoever. Like, I am nothing. I am down on the ground. I am not standing up. I, my eyes are closed. I don't want to get blinded. I don't want to get shot. Like, I'm down. Like all the way. So if you think about that, how powerful that is to have so many people together in the Beit HaMikdash 
It's Yom Kippur. You've just received atonement. And now you're going to hear Hashem's holy name uttered. And it's like you're at this place of cleansing and purity. And it's just like, whoa. And then that happens. I mean, that's like soul leave the body and be so rejoiceful. Like, I just want to go to Hashemayim right now. You know, and it's just like, wow. So that's the incredible weight of that name. Now, to take it out of that context and say, well, I'm going to pronounce his name. And she's like, well, do you know Hebrew? No. Do you keep Shabbat? No. Uh, how much Talmud have you studied? No. You know, like, do you eat kosher? Do you wear tzitzit? Do you wear kippah? Do you, like, literally love Hashem with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength? Are you willing to say, I am nothing? You know, like, anything. I don't know. And it's just like, yeah, but we're going to pronounce his name, though. And she's kind of like, so there are no J's in Hebrew, so let's start with that. Now, Hashem's name is vowelized so many different ways. So do you know your vowel points? No, you don't know vowel points? Okay. So how do you know how to pronounce this name? Well, I've heard it. Okay, so who did they hear it from? I'm guessing that no one heard it at the temple court because if they did, they're probably like, I don't know, at least 2,000-something years old. Which is possible, but chances are that person's not going to just go, hey, yeah, just go do this and utter that name. That's totally fine. Second of all, there are 12 different permutations of Hashem's name. So which one are you really trying to say? Because since it was such a supernatural utterance, I'm pretty sure all 12 of those names have to be mentioned at one time in order to get it close to being right. Then you go into the way that you see it in the Torah scroll. Because some people go, oh, I can read Hebrew, though. And it's just like, okay, oh, cool, I'll give you that. So you're just going to peruse through the Torah. Uh, it's like, okay, cool, you're in the Torah. That's great. But you're only in the Torah because you want to find how to pronounce his name. Not great. Okay, because now you're doing Torah not for the sake of Hashemayim. And if you don't do Torah for the sake of Shemaim, then you end up doing Torah being nourished by death literally that's the whole side of you know choose life or choose death you know be choose the good choose the evil blessings the curses like that's all in the Torah. it depends on what you do with it so that ends up happening that causes a lot of problems and so you end up with this uh very you know corrupted uh mindset and eyesight and vision and you finally find the name and it's just like, OK, so go through the Torah and the Tanakh and look how that name is vowelized. I guarantee you it's not vowelized the same way every time from the little knowledge that I've gleaned from the amazing Hassan. We talked about this a long time ago, so I apologize if I don't get it completely accurate. But the gist of it is about the Masoretic text that we have the vowel pointings and things like that for the name of Hashem were just put there so we know what to use as far as Hashem or Adonai and or something along that line. But it was never to pronounce his name, you know, so that we would know Hashem Sebaot or, you know, Hakadosh, you know, or things like that, like different titles of Hashem and kind of allude to those things. Second of all, with the vowel points in the Masoretic text thing, the only way we have our vowel points to our Ivrit is through rabbinic tradition. 
Yes, that just happened. So if you're studying Torah portions and you're reading Hebrew and you're learning Hebrew, you are going by rabbinic tradition because that's the only way you're going to know how all of the words sound and how all the different permutations work. So just want to put that out there that you have to accept the oral Torah in order to get an accurate Torah. Because if not, you're going to be trying to keep the Shabbat and make it holy. And you're going to come up with some crazy tradition. And it's going to be like, well, that's cool. Because, you know, you have free license to add and beautify a mitzvah. Not add a mitzvah, but, you know, like if you want to have a nice Shabbat, you want to play good music, you want to add in some sweet smells, like that kind of stuff. But if you don't have a tour, you're gonna run into some issues you know like what do i do what do i do on shabbat i mean i'm sitting here i'm keeping it holy uh okay it's been five minutes what do i do now you know it's just kind of like okay so all of that goes on to say the hard crazy sad and like crushing Reality is that when the name of Hashem is uttered by someone who just disregards all these circumstances that I've spent probably 10 minutes, if not more, talking about, it's it's literally the epitome of taking Hashem's name in vain, desecrating his name because you don't even care about what the weight of his name causes. When is his name ever uttered? How is his name ever uttered? You know, and it's just like, you don't even, uh, I at least I grew up in a generation where you didn't call your parents by their first name because they literally punched you in the mouth, if, among many other horrible things that people would probably just freak out and lose their mind about these days. But you did not uh, do that. And there was real fear in your heart, in your soul. If you thought, yeah, I'm going to call my parents by their first name. So if you wouldn't do that with your own parents, which I hope not today, no one does that either. You know, just don't. Okay. But if you if you got that level, then why would the shim would it be any different? Just saying. So, I mean, it's just really sad, you know, so if you think. Man, I'm walking around, I'm enjoying my day, and all of a sudden someone comes up and they're like, divine name, this, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, what just happened, you know, and like, you're in Walmart, you're like, this isn't the temple, who who are you, you know, what, what day is it, it's not Yom Kippur, oh my gosh, like, what, are you kidding me right now, so, anyway, it just begins to be this thing that loses sanctity and weight and kedusha and beauty and innocence and amazingness and it becomes something very mundane something very like disrespected something very lowly it's knocked off a shelf i mean knocked off of the throne or something like that hurts you know so i'm kind of really feeling that right now so anyway thank you for listening i know i'm supposed to talk about lots of stuff today and for my listeners who are subtly anticipating 
because I've talked to some of you and some of you may have already heard. I will be talking about reincarnation. Yep. Okay. So anyway, that's a little, uh, I don't know. They normally call it clickbait, but you, there's nothing to click on. So let's go back to showing up pink is though. All right. Great. So Bain Hamitzrim, that means the three weeks. And we just literally were able to see the word Ben Yah Mitzrayim being the son of Hashem uh, contained and confined in him. So that verse in Acha 1 3 says, All of her pursuers overtake her, Ben Hamitzrim, literally means between the narrow straits or times of trouble. So. Like uh, you think about the enemies of our soul have truly historically been taking over and pursuing us, causing all this trouble, you know, destructions of temples. We we will not go into the land because the land is like we can't do it, you know, slandering the land or dancing around a golden calf when we should be receiving Yeshua HaMashiach and uh, the Inquisitions, the Holocaust, like this all happened during this time frame. And the common denominator is that we were pro-exile in our hearts and in our minds and our actions and our thoughts and our speech and our deeds. Now, you may say that's kind of jumping way ahead and that escalated quickly. But it is. I mean, what caused the temple to be destroyed? Immorality, murder, hatred. We don't want no grace, you know, kind of thing. What caused the tablets to be shattered? Well, Moshe took too long, and I guess he's dead anyway. And it's just like, we need a God that we can see and that won't let us down and, you know, make make something for us. And it's just like, wow, like, really? That's where we're going to go with this? And what did we just read in Parsha Balak? The incident of Shatim? What caused Pincus to do what he did? You know, one of the leaders from Shimeon, that tribe, decided to go take a Midianite woman and um, bring her into the tent. She's not even converted. He just brought her in the camp and just decided to do... What married people who are who should be equally yoked do, and it's just like, wow, like really, that's what's going on. We gotta fix that. So, how do we fix that? Well, we fix it by being contained and confined in Ben Yah. Oh my goodness, Ben Yah, if you put that word together, son of Hashem. Ben Yah literally is the same letters for Bina, which is understanding. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. So Bina Mitzrayim being confined in the straits of understanding. That's how we fix it. We take that which is troublesome and that which is affliction that which is death and it becomes life you know like we die to ourselves so that we may live we deny ourselves so that we may follow mashiach and the beautiful thing about following mashiach we gain you know he says you're trying to find life 
But when you go out and find it, you lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. And so it's just like, think about that. You know, with these three weeks, it's the biggest blessing ever. Like, I'm losing my mind. I really want to write some songs. And it's just like, I never really want to write any songs. Like, I mean, I do, but I don't because I like to study and tour. So, you know, I got to go to work and I got to do chores and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And it's just like, well, now you, uh, (laughs) now you got these three weeks and it's just like, oh, we're going to write some songs. It's like, when do you ever have time to write songs? It's like, yeah, that's true. Why do I want to write songs right now? Why am I trying to hum every song in the world? It's like, oh, the Yatsahara. He's just like, I see an opportunity to exalt myself. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And it's just like, so now you got all these weird urges that you never have. It's just like, we don't ever really yearn and desire to do something until we can't do it. You know, it's just like, no carbs this week. It's like, uh, well, I wish I could have pancakes. I wish I could have cake. I wish I could have, you know, pop tarts and like all sorts of stuff. And you're like, what? Like, what is this? You know? So anyway, that's the beauty of understanding this, you know, because even the word Zohar, the word for light, uh, is the word for, um, the word is zo. Sleek, I'm trying to Zaharos. The word in Hebrew is the word for trouble, and it's the word. It's the same word as Zohar, but it's it's a a different the different way you say it. Same letters, so it's like you have to rearrange in your troubles. Oh my gosh, this is gonna bother me. So let me let me do it. Um, troubles. Zorot. There we go. Zorot. Troubles. This is uh, those uh, afflictions that Shaul talked about were pressed on every side, were beaten down, and, you know, were not dead, but, you know, kind of like anything to do with afflictions and troubles and trials, tribulations. There we go. That's that word. So you, uh, basically take the Saudi and you go Zadi Raish Hey as opposed to Zadi Hey Raish. So anyway, so you literally take this three weeks and it can be made into like the most incredible, amazing thing. So that's why Teshuva is so important because everything that has been problematic and uh, sins and mistakes and errors and failures through Teshuvah, all those things get turned completely 180. So they become merits, you know? And so, but they don't become merits if you're saying, oh, well, I can just make all these mistakes and then make Teshuvah and get extra merit. It's like, no, don't work like that. You know, it don't work like that. But if you really want to pick up some merits, though, you make Teshuvah on your Teshuvah, you know, like, I just made Teshuvah for that, and I'm trying to go forward, and I'm going to make Teshuvah for this, and I'm going forward. Like, 
but you're not trying to ever like digress you're trying to progress so anyway that's the wonderful part of this week are these three weeks uh and then shona pinka says during these three weeks it's incumbent upon each and every jew to feel concern and distress over the destruction of the beta mcdash and yisrael's galut which is exile it's essential that we pray for the complete and final geula redemption well doing that believe that know that and trust that all right so uh we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come right back straight into reincarnation because it's about that time to take that on so thank you for listening this is the first part we'll be right back after this break all right shalom welcome back to parsha show enough pancakes man all right so we're just gonna fly everywhere and go crazy i've got all the heavy stuff out of the way now we're just gonna have fun we are in parsha pinkus so just that's that's the only uh organized message that i'm gonna say right there so first thing i want to start with is or hachaim uh 25 verse 11 Pincus Ben Elazar. That's the only phrase. Pincus Ben Elazar. Okay? Now, it says, Indeed, you find that the sages of blessed memory said in the Midrash, Tana Deve Eliyahu Rabbah, chapter 13, that Aharon would constantly work to make amends for what he had done, and to this end would continuously teach Torah to the entire Jewish people and guide them to perform good deeds. Until here is a paraphrase of the Midrash. You thus learn that Aharon was held accountable for the damage he had caused the nation by indirectly bringing about the death of many people. And he would therefore seek to mend the breach in the nation by providing spiritual guidance to the survivors. The people, too, knew that Aharon bore some responsibility for those deaths. And by presenting Pincus's lineage here, Hashem hinted that they should make full shalom with Aharon, since Pincus had now compensated for Aharon's action with a yet greater measure of good. For Aharon had caused the death of many Jews, but Pincus now saved the entire nation. All right, so that's atonement uh, at its finest. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and go straight for the jugular here. Um, 333, I remember seeing that word earlier. So there's this whole section where it goes through lineage. And I just want you to know, whenever lineages are being dropped in the text, you please pay attention to that because I'm telling you, for some reason, it's like the parts of Torah that are translated into English that seem so dull, like why we got to go through 
the same phrases repeated so many different times and it's like 56 verses and it's just like oh my gosh like um trying to focus i'm trying to stay awake but i feel like i can't it's just like just know believe and understand that when it starts getting into that some legitness is being thrown down so in this lineage part of chapter 26 where are we at yeah it should be yeah 26 trying to get to the beginning here okay so verse 5 Reuben the firstborn of Yisrael the sons of Reuben (laughs) Hanok which is Enoch that's legit um, the Enoch family of Palu, the Paluite family of Chetzron, the Chetzronite family of Carmi, and the Carmite family. Okay, so that's all going good. We're gonna keep going. I'm gonna go ahead and fly straight to what I saw that I could not believe what was happening because it was just like. Out of all the places, this is where we're going to talk about this. Now, you know, I've been on this kick about uh, hastening the coming of Mashiach. And guess what? It's in the lineage section over here. So, looks like it starts with the sons of Yehuda, which, obviously, I'm not surprised. Because I was just kind of gleaning and glancing through. I didn't really start from the beginning. But here we go. So we're going to start with the sons of Yehuda. This is verses 19 through 22. They're only commenting right now on the phrase B'nai Yehuda. Now check this out. So he's saying that we're going to interpret this passage with the approach of Remez, which is illusion. Okay. So B'nai Yehuda. Now, before we do this, I'm going to go ahead and insert... Who are the two sons of Yehuda? Peretz, Zerach. Remember those two kids, the twins? The sons that he had with Tamar? Lineage of Mashiach. Guess what? They're going to go ahead and start talking about that. Okay, here we go. So it says, This passage alludes to major events that will happen to the Jewish nation in the course of their history. Now, the Torah chose to allude to events that relate to the entire nation, specifically in the passage about Yehuda. Stop it. Man. Because you know, Yehuda is like the divine name plus a Dalit. You know, and remember, the Dalit speaks of Mashiach, who is the door. You know, so when you put Mashiach in into Hashem's name, like namely a Dalit into Hashem's name, it becomes Yehuda. And we know that there's a Mashiach ben Yosef and a Mashiach ben Yehuda, like David. So remember Dalit, David, that's in Yehuda. Okay, cool. Alright, so keep going. So everything here, we're going to talk about the history of the nation and everything that's going to happen just looking at Yehuda. Alright, so when it says the sons of Yehuda, it it means the chronicles of the Jewish people. Wow. For the things that happen to a person are often called his sons. 
It says this is well known. <laughs> yeah, things that happen to us are called our sons. That that just happened. Okay. We do not find an explicit source that interprets a scriptural reference to a person's sons as relating to his chronicles. We do find, though, that a person's offspring, i.e. Toldot, is a reference to his chronicles. See Rashi or Or Hakim to Bereshit 37.2. Wow. Sons, offspring, chronicles, Toldot. Wow. All right. So it says, Er and Onan, this alludes to the first Beit HaMikdash and the second Beit HaMikdash. Er, which means alert, corresponds to the first Beit HaMikdash. In keeping what it says, Shir HaSharim 5.2, I was asleep, but my heart was alert. The sages explain the verse to mean that HaKadosh Baruch was alert in the first Beit HaMikdash in the sense he showed the great providential care for us while he dwelled in the highly sanctified temple. Onan is an allusion to the second Beit HaMikdash. Onan is related to the term fraud. Wow. Particularly passing off something or passing something off as worth more than its true value because the second Beit HaMikdash lacked the essential aspects of the highly sanctified temple. It thus looked like a full-fledged Beta Mikdash, but was actually lacking much of its spiritual glory. Yep. That's cray cray. Uh, the sons of Yehuda were Vayihehu, and it says this alludes to the distress that came upon the Yehudim after the destruction of the Beta Mikdash. Okay, because it's like the Vayahi, but it was like extra letters in there. All right, and so trying to find my little. Here we go. So it says now they're talking about uh, or Hakim moves on to the next phrase in our verse. It further says according to their families. This alludes to the fact the families of Israel, wherever they might be. In other words, all who go by the name of Yehuda were in exile. All right. The verse then says of Shelah. Okay, so we're doing that. It says, this refers to the savior and leader who will come to redeem the Yehudim from the final exile, i.e. Mashiach. Wow. They're talking about the person of Mashiach. In this parasha, in the section about names. I'm telling you, if you don't have oral Torah rabbinic commentary, you're missing a whole lot of awesome sauce. But wait, you're listening to this podcast. Okay, anyway, I'm continuing. It says, so Mashiach, who is called Shelah. Really? He's called Shelah by Yaakov and his blessing to Yehuda, Bereshit 49.10. Now, although Yaakov actually called him Shiloh rather than Shelah, the name is not considered different on that account. You can learn this from the families listed here, which features several changes in the names they have from Parashah Vayigash. So, 
for example, Shimeon is called Yemuel in Vayigash, and Nemuel here. And the first son of Gad is called Ziphion in Vayigash and Zephon here. Okay, get you some. Now, then it says, this is one of the things I was like, whoa. It says, perhaps the phrase Shelah next to the phrase the sons of Yehuda were Vayihehu, Heyu, Vayihehu, okay, the whole thing about the destructions. It says, the Torah indicates that the Jews were to be in emotional distress due to their deep desire for Mashiach and are to yearn for his salvation. You know, because that kind of made me feel a little less crazy for being all like, come on, everybody, let's make Teshuvah, let's expect the redemption, let's merit the coming of it, let's hasten the redemption. You know, like, it's right here. Then it says... This is, as the sages of blessed memory said in the record of the incident in which Rabbi Yehoshua, literally Yeshua, Ben Levi, met Mashiach. It says that Mashiach answered or asked him whether the Yehudim recognized his pain over the delay in his appearance, his appearance and whether they too become ill due to awaiting him the quote ends here okay so yearning being in pain during this time of wait like i don't know like birth pains or something like really romans right now it's crazy all the creation is groaning we're having these birth pains you know waiting for that day you know the great day when everything will be rectified mashiach coming like that wow Nothing new under the sun. You know, it's crazy. You say there's nothing new in the New Testament. And obviously we don't call it that. But for the sake of the example and the semantics and the pun, it really isn't. So anyway. says, this is also in keeping with the words of the Zohar, volume 2, 55b, an explanation of the verse. The voice of your lookouts. They raise their voice. Yeshayahu 52.8 The Zohar explains the word for lookouts means those who await you. The verse thus means that those who await the Mashiach raise their voices in distress over the delay in his arrival. Alright, getting turned up. That's what we do. Uh, here's another one. It says that I feel like I'm just looking at pure gold right now. This is crazy. I'm glad I got my mask on because I got to filter this. It says this then is the meaning of the verse's statement. The sons of Yehuda were vayiheyu, meaning that the Jews should be in a state of woe that is in distress according to their families. That is, every Jewish family should be in distress on account of their yearning for Shelah, meaning Mashiach. This is what the verse means when it says, Le Shelah, of Shelah. According to our interpretation, this phrase is interpreted as for Shelah. 
Then it says, Through this yearning for Mashiach's arrival, the Jews will indeed merit becoming the Shalanite family, meaning they will be the generation in which the Mashiach Ben David will arrive, and they will go by his name, called the generation of Mashiach. The Shalanite family is another way of saying the generation of Mashiach. This verse indicates then that by fervent longing for Mashiach, we will indeed merit to welcome him. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I just want to throw stuff right now. Like, really? Yearning for Mashiach? Alright, and so this is the last thing I'm going to share from this because uh, this is just overload. Oh, no, I'm going to share two things. Okay, I'm going to share Zerach because... Zarak always stood out to me because Peretz was like technically the firstborn, but Zarak, he came through, you know, and it's kind of like put the red string around his arm. Uh, let me double fact check that real quick. Because you know how I am, I get all off into my excited tangents and it's just like Peretz was the second born. And it's just like, well, the man descended from Peretz because Mashiach's lineage came from Peretz. Okay. My Bible acting like I can't uh, search that. All right. Do it the old school way. Just trying to be all technologically savvy, but I'm going to pull out the old book on them. Okay, so Parsha Vayashev. My Torah portion. Come on. Okay, Yosef doing his thing. Over here, all right, so Zerak. Okay, afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread on his hand. That was Zerak. Okay, Zerak should have been the firstborn, but he put his hand back in. Peretz broke through. Okay, so the one who broke through. Okay, got it, man been like how long ago since Parsha Vayashev happened seriously I don't even think I got to do a Midrash that week about to do one right now here we go Parsha Vayashev by the way of show enough pinkus get you some says so another allusion to this phrase that says of Peretz of the Perizzite family this phrase also alludes to the great endless breach that Mashiach will forge in the ranks of idolatrous nations. That escalated quickly. What just happened? Based off the fact that the name Peretz is related to Pirza, which means breach, and then thus Ha-Partzi means the one who breaches. So the final phrase of the verse, so we did the Peretz. That's all about restoring the breach. 
uh, it says that Mashiach, who descends from Peretz, will arrive. The entire Jewish people will become a Peretzite family. So now we're a Shelonite family. We're a Peretzite family. And then it says, it is on the account. Hang on. Mashiach will arrive. The entire Jewish people called Peretzite family. That is, they will all be considered kings. Wow. Nice. Okay, so you're a royal priesthood, holy nation, something like that. That's not just in First Kepha, that's also in Shemot 19. Okay, anyway, um, it says, final statement about Zerach, the Zerachite, Zerachite family. It's a hard word to say. This alludes to Yeshiahu 60, verse 2. For behold, darkness may cover the earth, and a thick cloud may cover the kingdoms. But upon Hashem, but upon you, Hashem will shine. Oh, you mean like a rise, shine, your light has come, that old thing. And it is further written in verse 19 of that same chapter of Yeshiahu. Oh, shout out to Yeshiahu if you're listening to this. Uh, it says, Hashem will be an eternal light for you. The name Zarak means one who shines and alludes to the time when Hashem will shine his light upon those who are worthy. And that is also what the verse alludes to when it says the Zerachite family. When that time comes, you are the family, i.e. the chosen nation upon which Hashem will shine his light eternally. This is ridiculous right now. This is Or HaChaim on this crazy name section. In chapter 26. Alright, here we go. Ready for another one? Okay. So, Orachim now offers different homiletic interpretation of the names of these three families. Shelah, Peretz, and Zarak. Ready? Alternatively, the passage alluding to the three stages that will come to pass at the time of the redemption. He just said three stages. He did not say two. <laughs> Wow. Three stages of redemption. Ready? The first stage is the arrival of the first Mashiach, the descendant of Ephraim. As the sages state, is the arrival, or as the sages of blessed memory said, Sukkah 52a. A Mashiach from Ephraim will come before. A Mashiach from Ephraim will come before. Sukkah 52a. Sourcing it out, or Hachaim twenty six twenty two, Bami Bar like bringing it. A Mashiach from Ephraim will come before the Mashiach descended from David is destined to be killed in the war of Gog and Magog. Okay, then it says the second stage is the appearance of Mashiach, who is a descendant of David. The third stage is when Hashem himself will reign over us. If you listen to the Haftarah get you some for Parsha Pinkas, then you know Ephraim or Ben Ephraim, Ben David, and Hashem himself are all one. How's that for Trinity? We don't do Trinities. Sleek out. That was bad. I'm sorry. Okay. Here we go. So three stages of redemption. That was insane. 
That's the Shela Peretz Zarak tangent. Ready? It says, with respect to the arrival of the Mashiach descended from Ephraim, it says, Shela. The Torah indicates that this Mashiach will be struck by divine judgment and will die due to the sins of the Jews. This is hinted at in the word Shelah, which connotates a blunder that is met with divine judgment. In line with the verse's statement that when the Aron was being transported on wagons and became dislodged by oxen, Uzzah reached out to prevent it from falling and God struck him there for the blunder. That is from 2 Samuel 6, 7. They just said the ark being dislodged from the oxen and almost falling, but Uzzah sticking out his hand and being struck down by Hashem is likened to Mashiach, is a picture of Mashiach dying for the sins of the Jews. How in the world? Like, see, so that's the thing. If you ever get into a situation where you're like, those rabbis or that oral Torah and the Talmud, that's evil, that's wickedness, you don't want to hear about that. I'm sorry, but we're talking about family names and lineages. And I just went through like three or four pages of nothing but expecting Mashiach, learning about his appearances, learning that he's going to die, learning that he's going to return. I mean, what kind of argument is that? Get out of here. Okay. The other kind of get out of here, because normally when we tell people to get out at Tar Shalom, it's like, that was so amazing. I don't know what to tell you. And so it's just like, thank you for coming, pushing your chair and you may leave now, you know, and it's just kind of like, what, what? That sounds rude. And it's like, no, that's a, that's a term of compliment or like, what is wrong with you? Get some help. Those are all like good things that you want to hear. Okay. All right. I said I was only going to do two things, but I'm just, for some reason, I need to read these next two parts. It says, with respect to the Mashiach descendant from David, it says of Peretz, the Perizzite family. He is called Peretz for he will make a breach and the nations killing many of them and will avenge the blood of the righteous. Mashiach descended from Ephraim. Wow. He's going to avenge Mashiach Ben Ephraim. That's crazy. Okay, and with respect to the eternal kingship of Hashem, it says of Zerach family, the Zerachite family, which alludes to the glory of Hashem that will shine upon us. That's cool. All right, uh, one more, I guess. Oh my goodness, can't stop reading this. The Torah says the sons of Peretz were. It uses the word Vayihehu, Vayiheyu which is an expression of distress to allude to the tribulations that will come to pass when the Redeemer, Mashiach, arrives. Noise. Uh, Sanhedrin 98b, they dropped that in here. What does it say? Let Mashiach come, but I should not see him due to their fear of experiencing the great suffering of the birth pangs of Mashiach. 
Okay. So that's awesome. Romans eight twenty two. Bring it on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, Romans eight twenty two twenty three. I mean, there you go. All right. Let's look at some screenshots from Zolan. Just pulling the gloves off now. I ain't pulling any punches. Zolan has the uh, Baha Turim. And he is our kosher version of uh, the Submariner. Oh, let me go with... Uh, Laharos first. Laharos is our Havoc Avenger. Okay, it says this is from the Midrash Get You Some, page 389. Why did the Torah require a wheat offering on Shavuot? On this festival, judgment is passed in Hashemayim on the fruit harvest of the entire year. We offer a wheat offering to Hashem so that Hashem should bless the fruit trees. Okay. And then the footnote. Again, it's a Chuck Norris footnote. It says that Rosh Hashanah 16a Rashi explains that the wheat is considered a type of fruit since before Adam sinned, it grew on a tree. And after Mashiach's arrival, it will do so again. Then it says, it is noteworthy that the Corbin Omer offered on Pesach consists of barley, whereas the Shavuot offering comprised the wheat. Barley is ordinary used as animal fodder, whereas the wheat is a staple food of man. Hence, wheat, in the language of our sages, represents knowledge and wisdom. And that's where uh, myself and a few other Avengers were like, oh, my word. You mean like the knowledge of tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And it's like you're eating from that tree to try to gain knowledge and wisdom. And it's just like, hmm, that's bread. Mayam Loez brings down the problem with eating from that tree was that they ate too early. They ate before the onset of Shabbat. Namely, after they would have taken the time to do Kiddush and Hamotzi. Because they, they were supposed to eat from that tree eventually, but it was supposed to be at a certain time. So again, there's this whole thing about not waiting to the appropriate time. So... That was that. All right. So are we going to go to Baha Turin? Yes, we are going to Baha Turin right now. All right. So this was cool. So talking about the Vav and the I give him my covenant of Shalom. 
says the letter Vav equals six. It is cut off because Pincus is identical with Eliyahu. Uh, I didn't get a footnote on that. Trying to see if it says anything on this picture. No, it don't. So that would have been cool to see what another interpretation of that would have been. Since we know it's not reincarnation, we know it's something else. Okay. And Eliyahu's name sometimes is spelled with, uh, without the Vav. And then it says Yaakov's name is sometimes spelled without a Vav. This indicates that Yaakov took the Vav from Eliyahu as security. Security? Security. Okay, so anyway, took my Vav. Says until Eliyahu would come. Yaakov took the law from Eliyahu as security until Eliyahu would come with Mashiach and redeem Yaakov's descendants. <laughs> Yaakov's like, Look, if you ain't gonna be involved, then I'm gonna have to just take this. It's just like, Wow. Okay, so this is also intimated by the verse Yaakov will exult, Yisrael will rejoice. Tehillim 14 7. All right, cool. What else we got over here? The letters of Yismach are the same as that of Mashiach. For Yaakov will rejoice at Yisrael's redemption and the time of Mashiach. And he will return the Vav to Eliyahu's name. And it will be complete. This is alluded to by the word Shalom. For the gematria of Shalom is 376. Equal to that of Zehu Mashiach. This is a reference to Mashiach. Nice. Let's go ahead and keep going. The next verse uh, with Pinkas bringing atonement. Says that the verse does not state Lechaper to atone. But Vaikaper. He brought atonement, which may be interpreted as if he read Ve Yakper, he will bring atonement. For Pincus stands by ready and brings atonement for Yisrael until the end of all generations. Here's where you can confuse the the mission again because it says Mashiach sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. See if I can get a quick reference on that. Yep, Romans eight thirty four. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Mashiach Yeshua, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father and also interceding for us. Um. Uh, Hebrews 9:24 for Mashiach did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one he entered Hashemaim itself now to appear for us in God's presence First Yochanan 2:1 My dear children 
I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua HaMashiach, the righteous one. Get you some of that. So we see that precedent set with Pincus. All right. So then... All right, that's it for Bahaturim. Okay, cool. All right, what else we got over here? Just throwing stuff around right now. Uh. Yeah, I think I think we're good. Okay, cool. So we're going to finish all up with Show Enough Pinkus. This is dedicated only to that now. So all my sources compiled into one. Here we go. All right. So then we got the Gemara on Megillah 31b teaches us that the reading of a given parasha on any given Shabbat is not coincidental. Ezra HaSofer, yes, the Ezra of Ezra Nehemiah, he arranged the, the reading of the weekly portions to coincide with the various Shabbatot of the year with deliberate intent. Okay, so if you think all of this Torah portion stuff and cycle stuff is man-made, then, you know, talk to Ezra about it. Because apparently he did a really good job. Because for some reason, whenever you're going through these Torah portions, your life seems to mold to them and fit everything that's going on. So, he says, this showed up Pinkus again. Thus, it should be quite clear to us that an intimate relationship exists between Parsha Pincus and the three weeks, known as Bain Hametzrim. The association of Pincus with Bain Hametzrim can be explained based on the B'nai Yisakar. Tammuz and Av presents in the name of the Arizal. According to the Arizal, the months of the year correspond to anatomical parts of the head okay so all the months are a head so now all the months are Mashiach because remember Mashiach is the head okay if you don't believe me let me go ahead and get a quick reference alright I'm gonna choose uh, Ephesians five, twenty-three. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Mashiach is the head of the congregation, his body, of which he is the Savior. Okay. Just saying. So all the months correspond to Mashiach. So that's why each tribe is associated with a month. Each permutation of the name of his of Hashem is associated with the month because it's all Mashiach all right so Tammuz and Av represents a person's two eyes 
Now, that's really cool because it says, Echa Lamentations 116. Over these I weep. My eye, my eye runs with water. My eyes shed mournful tears over the destruction, over the churban. Churban means destruction. Over the churban of the Beit HaMikdash. Speaking of watering eyes, David had watering eyes. Talking about the destruction of the temple. How about not following Torah? Because that's one and the same thing. Not following Torah is like destroying the temple. Wow, that escalated quickly. Tehillim 119, 136 through 142. Rivers of tears flow down my eyes because they don't observe your Torah. Your righteousness, Adonai, and your rulings are upright. You have commanded your instructions in righteousness and great faithfulness. My zeal is destroying me because my foes have forgotten your words. Your word is refined to complete purity, and your servant loves it. I may be small and despised, but I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is eternal righteousness, and your Torah is truth. So when Mashiach says, I came to testify to the truth, talking to Pilate, he was basically saying, I came to testify and be a witness of the Torah. While I'm over here on my other notes, there's this new rabbi that I've gotten to check out his commentary on the weekly parasha. His name is Rabbi Greenbaum, which obviously I call him Rabbi G-Baum, because what else could I call him? Maybe I can call him by his real name. Touche. Okay. So, it says, Pinkus valor lay in standing up for what is right and true, even though it flew in the face of prevailing orthodoxy. That's really what Lapid is. You know, we're standing up for first century Judaism in the prevailing face of orthodoxy. Yeah, because, I mean, again, we don't prescribe to reincarnation, but yet orthodoxy is teaching that. Orthodoxy says don't drive on Shabbat, but we don't prescribe to that because... We'd rather people know Hashem as opposed to not be able to drive to shul where they could learn about Hashem. So, just saying. Okay, then it says, um, he was in mortal danger of getting lynched. Pincus did not flinch from stating the Torah law, even when it was unpopular. For this, he was given God's covenant of shalom. Um... Yeah, I think I'll stick with that. Okay, so that's Rabbi G-Bomb on Pincus. Alright, so then we got Pincus is the one who will announce the future arrival. Based off Bami Bar 2510, Targum Yonatan, I will establish my covenant of shalom with him by making him an angel and a messenger who will live for all eternity. He will be the one to announce the redemption at the end of time. There's one of your two witnesses uh, from Revelation. Then it says... Uh, at first glance, the Targum Yonatan is rather obscure. Where do we find this in the Pasuk? 
says, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. Any reference to the fact that Pincus is destined, or any reference to the fact that Pincus is destined to become Eliyahu and to announce the future redemption and final redemption, we find the same explanation in Yalkut Shimoni on Pincus. Rab Rabbi Shimeon ben Lakish said, Pincus is Eliyahu. Hakadosh Baruch Hu said to him, you establish shalom between Israel and me in this world, so too in the world to come, you will be the one to establish shalom between me and my children. As it says in Malachi 2, or Malachi 3:23, Behold, I am sending you Eliyahu Hanabi before the coming of the great and awesome day of Hashem, and he will turn back the hearts of the fathers to their sons and the hearts of the sons to their father. Okay. That's pretty legit. This is something that I really liked. So it's talking about how the angel of death, which is called the Malach Hamavit, is uh, covered in eyes. So remember how these two months represent the eyes, Tammuz and Av, right? Also represents fire and water brought down by Trugman. It says, it appears that in Kohelet, which is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13, a poor but wise young boy is preferable to an old and foolish king. Okay. The poor wise boy is the Yetzer Tov. It's referred to as a young boy because it does not enter a person until he is 13 years old. Bar Mitzvah. Then it says it is described as a poor or unfortunate because the bodily limbs do not heed it as they do the Yetzahara. It is described as wise because it guides man sensibly intelligently to do good so it's poor but it's wise the body is not going to listen to it but if we do listen to it it'll be good guidance the king is the Yetzahara who rules over all the body limbs it is described as old because it enters one's body at birth it is described as foolish because it misleads a people to going astray along a wayward path. So there's that. So you may have this old king set up, but where is it taking you? So you know what I had to do? Had to open up what Sha'ul repeated and then kind of give us a good overlay on that. Romanos 7, 22-25 For my inner self and my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah. Okay? My Yetzer Tov is like, mm, yes, I agree with that. I see a different, but in my various parts, in my body limbs, bodily limbs, I see a different Torah. One that battles with the Torah in my mind. Okay? There are two Torahs. There's a Torah of life, a Torah of death. It's a Torah that I really want to do, that my Yetzer Tov is all about. 
and then there's a Torah that is all about the Yetzirah, the the Torah of death. Okay, that's at work in the limbs of my body, because my body is going to listen to the king. It's not going to listen to this poor, wise, unfortunate boy over here. Then it says, "What a miserable creature I am! Who will rescue me from this body?" Bound for death, thanks be to Hashem, He will, through Yeshua Hamashiach, to sum up, with my mind I am a slave to God's Torah, but with my old nature I am a slave to sin's Torah. He said old nature, remember the Yetzahara, is described as old because he enters a body at birth. Okay, so... That was crazy. And then it says over here that if we read in Hagiga 2a, going up to the Beit HaMikdash to celebrate the festivals, a person who is blind in one eye is exempt from the obligation of appearing in the Beit HaMikdash on the three festivals. Because appearing in the Beit HaMikdash on the three festivals serves no person if a person is not capable of seeing one's existence from both perspectives. Because our two eyes are supposed to use one to recognize our own insignificance and one to recognize the greatness of the Creator. And then that's from Avodat Yisrael on Shoftim. So we're supposed to see that we're insignificant and that Hashem is great. So those are our two eyes. So with one eye, we must see and consider the current needs and demands of this world. But with the other, we must immediately envision the future. We must anticipate the consequences of our actions. Indeed, or for instance, will eating this food or performing this deed also be viewed positively in the future so okay when he held when he will be held by when he will be held accountable by the king of kings so it's like whatever we're doing we're scrutinizing it to make sure like this looks good now will it look good in the future that would just go a whole long way if we just approach life like that now, basically, with this all being summed up, the reason why the Malak Hamavit has eyes on it is because it's those eyes that we didn't use to scrutinize all of our actions. Because when we're led into sin, our eyes are taken away because we're not paying attention. We're not really looking at it and recognizing the awesomeness of Hashem. What will this action be viewed as in the future? So we kind of get stuck in the moment. And so those eyes, we're confronted with them upon the day of our death. And it's just like, ah, oh, man, I did not see this coming kind of thing. I have to lighten it up a little bit because it was a lot heavy there. But we need to we need to do that though. We need to really like pay attention to what we're doing because that would actually help us fear sin. You know, like we don't want all of the uh, failures and possible 
uh, successes and victories we had to stare us in the face and go, look at what you didn't do. You know, like that kind of gets a little crazy. So Bereshit 3.6, the sin of the tree of knowledge. Sleeka, so you know about the tree was good and for eating and it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable for comprehension, that whole thing. Then sin, here we go. Rashi comments, the eyes of both of them were open. Regarding the matter of wisdom, did the passage speak? And not regarding the matter of actual sight. The end of the passage proves this. They realized they were naked. Even the blind man realizes when he is naked. So what does it mean by they realized they were naked? There was one mitzvah. Just one job. There was one mitzvah that they were given and they became naked of it. That's what that meant. And then it says, prior to the monumental sin, man could fulfill the will of Hashem without actually dying. He merely needed to consider the consequences of violating Hashem's will, knowing that he would be held accountable for his actions, even while he was still alive. Takuni Zohar, uh, 2469b, the redundant language, mot. Temot implies death in the in the Olam Hazeh and death in the Olam Haba. In other words, even after his demise in this life, Hakadosh Baruchu would punish him in Gehenna in the next world. There's a whole drop on hell again. Apparently Jews believe in that. So Rashi on Bereshit 2.25 The Yetzahara had not been placed in man, in him until his eating from the tree, then the Yatsahara entered his being, and he knew the difference between good and bad. From that point on, the Yatsahara could only be overcome through actual death. Okay, so the whole thing we have to die in order to live, who will set me free from this body of death, and kind of swinging around to the finish. Um. Let's see here. I think that might be it. Uh, let's go with, okay. He turned back my wrath from the people. The very same wrath characterized by the fire of Gehenna that looked or that loomed menacingly over B'nai Yisrael in the upper realm was redirected downwards because Pinchas, he zealously avenged me among them by recreating the vengeance of Gehenna and the mist of Yisrael. In this world, he was willing to sacrifice his life by killing the two of them, Zimri and Kosby, simultaneously so that Yisrael would experience the terror of the day of judgment in the Olam Hazeh. So in other words, what he did, he brought Gehenna forth for them to see now. Like, this is punishment. You don't want to do uh, all these sins that you're going on. So he publicly displayed the effects of sin and the 
torture and the punishment that ensues from it. And they were like, wow, no thank you. And it was just kind of like, that's what caused Hashem's wrath to be turned away. So, in conclusion, Tammuz and Av correspond to the two eyes, the source of the flaw in these two months that caused the Chorban of the two Beta Mikdash was that Yisrael neglected to use their two eyes properly. So, we need to use our eyes properly. One, we must see positive and good matters containing to this world, and it's essential that we do so in combination to the second eye and visiting the future consequences and ramifications. Every Everything we do should be L'Shem Shemayim for satisfying the will of Hashem. If we follow this example, or if we follow this simple plan, we will not be ashamed when we stand before HaKadosh Baruch Hu on account of our actions. So, uh, as explained, the function of Eliyahu is his job to complete what Pinchas began to make all of Yisrael cognizant of the punishment of HaKadosh Baruch Hu has in store for the wicked in Gehenna. This is precisely what Eliyahu will do in preparation for the final Geula. May it be swiftly in our times. Amen. All right. So let's use our two eyes to look to the clouds, which again, I said those clouds are formed by our prayers and our teshuva, our yearnings, our tears, our acts of kindness, our zedakah, our mitzvot. Okay, if we're stirring all that up, we create those clouds of glory that Mashiach will return on. So may everything be for the sake of Hashemayim. May we merit to see the coming of Mashiach Yeshua, the return, as well as the coming of Mashiach Yeshua, and the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash speedily and soon in our days. This is Shomerman signing out for Parashah Shonaf Pinkus. Blessings to everyone. Enjoy your Shabbat. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah emet Vechaye olam natabet ocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Noten haTorah Amen Amen Lalatov And Shalom